Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's so good to see you here. Rob, thank you for those encouraging words. Um, they really spoke to my heart. So thank you for blessing us with your sharing. My name is Tim Park. I serve as our lead pastor. If this is your first visit to our church, a special e-free welcome to you. I hope that you will enjoy your visit, and I trust that you'll experience the warmth of Jesus in this place. Before we open God's Word, I'd like to take just a few minutes of your time this morning to share some good news. I shared this good news last week, but I always like to share good news over and over again. And many of you were maybe away last week, so if you allow me just a few minutes to share this good news once again this morning, I'd appreciate that. For a number of you, uh, over the years, you've been hearing about a new children's center. And over the years, many of you have given to this eventual project. And this has been a labor of love, truly a labor of love for many people. And it's involved many people over the years to get us even to this point today. And uh, if I go back a number of years ago toward the beginning of our dream of a new children's center, we embarked on a three-year campaign called NEXT. And during this three-year commitment, our church family members committed to partnering with one another and investing in this eventual project. And in that three-year commitment in the next campaign, we, we raised a million dollars for this project. Praise God for that. Yes, you could, you could thank God for that. At the end of that campaign... Our leaders got together, and I'm so thankful for the elders, the leaders that God has really blessed our family here at Efree with, because uh, over the years, God has used their wisdom to really uh, speak into uh, our church. And from the beginning, our elders knew that we were going to wait on God's timing. And the one thing we did not want to do was to incur a debt that was unmanageable. We wanted to be good stewards of God's resources. So we knew that it wasn't time to start that project after the next campaign. So we embarked on a, another three-year initiative called Impact, expanding our reach. And for the next three years, you faithfully gave again. And through your generosity, we raised another million dollars. Praise God for that too. Yes. Now, many of you were not here during those initiatives. And it's exciting because you now are able to see what God has done. And we're thankful that as God has brought new faces, new people here to our church family, that we have the opportunity to partner together from this point forward. And so after the impact initiative, and then combined with the next resources, as well as other savings, Recently, our elders determined that it was time to, for us to move forward. And we're so excited because later today at our business meeting, in just a matter of minutes, we're going to gather back here into the worship center. And I invite you to come because you'll get to hear all the exciting details about what lies ahead. We're going to lay out all the exciting details for you. And for those of you who are newer to our church family, and for those of us who were part of the next and impact campaigns, we have the distinct opportunity moving forward to partner together. And what's exciting is our elders have determined 
that right now is time for us to move forward and that any loan that we may be possibly see taking out will be absolutely manageable. Any loan combined with our savings and the resources from the previous two initiatives together, we are confident that the timing is right. And here's the best news. We have recently signed an agreement for work to begin on the new Children's Center in a matter of a couple of weeks. Yes. What that means is, in the coming Sundays, you may drive in and you might see work being done. It's exciting. And again, I invite you to come to the business meeting and you'll hear all the important details. And so we're going to remodel, expand, and enhance the Children's Center, which is to your right, just back there, the back building. Our new Children's Center is going to house our entire children's ministry from nursery all the way up through fifth grade in one new state-of-the-art building along with the new state-of-the-art playground. And it's going to be a wonderful addition to our church campus. And finally, I want to say a huge thank you to those of you who are part of the team that helped build our current education building. And when I say helped build, there were some in our church family who actually took a hammer and nail and they built the building by hand. When that building first went up, it went up by the hands of our entire church family some years ago. And so we are building on your legacy. So we look forward to the days ahead. So stay tuned for all the exciting details. Again, I invite you to come back into the worship center at the conclusion of this service. Well, with that in mind, I want to share with you the title of this morning's message. The title is The God Who Loves. The God Who Loves. And we'll be in John chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. We are currently in a series called The Wonders of Jesus That You May Believe. This is a lengthy series. It's a wonderful series, and we're diving into the gospel of John. And today we're continuing with chapter 3. Last week, we looked at the first 16 verses, and we concluded last week's message with John chapter 3, verse 16. And today we begin our message with that very verse, John chapter 3, verse 16. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John 3. And what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to read our passage in its entirety, and then we'll go back and we'll unpack this rich passage. Verse 16. And we sang this verse earlier today. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds 
will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Now, throughout our series, we've been talking about the differences between John's gospel and the synoptic gospels. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call these the synoptic gospels because the word synoptic means a common perspective. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their gospels are very similar to one another. Similar in their stories, similar in their words, similar in their styles. John's gospel is very different. It is very distinct. And one of the characteristics of John's style of writing is that John emphasizes contrasting elements. Throughout his gospel, as well as the other books that he wrote in the New Testament, did you know that John also wrote the letters of 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John? He also wrote the book of Revelation. So in the five books that we have from the Apostle John, he likes to talk about contrasting elements. And one of those contrasting elements is light versus darkness. And we'll see this throughout today's passage. Now, before we unpack this important passage, I want you to know that sometimes when we open up the Word of God, when we start reading a passage, we might be led to view that passage through a certain set of lenses. But if those lenses are distorted, if they're cloudy, if they're out of focus, if they're the wrong prescription, then that might lead to a wrong understanding of that passage. And that could easily happen with a passage like today's. And so I don't want us to approach this passage with the wrong prescription lenses. We need to have the proper mindset. Anytime we approach the Word of God, we must have the proper mindset. In other words, the proper spiritual posture. It's important when you're walking to walk with good posture. It's important to sit with good posture. Okay, I see some of you sitting up now. You need proper posture when you're walking, when you're sitting. Well, every time we open up the Word of God, the proper posture is one of humility and gratitude. That's my encouragement to you this morning as we open up to this important passage, that we approach this passage with a posture of humility and gratitude. You see, if we read today's passage with the wrong spiritual posture, here's what might happen. We might walk away with an us versus them mentality. We don't want to make that mistake. We don't want to have an us versus them mentality. And I think you'll see what I mean as we unpack this passage. Let's read verse 16 again. And after I read verse 16, I'm going to spend several minutes unpacking this one verse, and then we'll continue on with the remaining verses. Verse 16 says, For God so loved 
the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whenever you see the word for, or the word therefore in the Bible at the beginning of a sentence, it's a good idea to read the verse that came before that verse. So every time you come to the word for or therefore, just understand that that's a connecting verse. The Apostle John gave us verse 16 to conclude Jesus' conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. If you were here last week, we looked at that passage. Let's go back and read verses 13 to 15 to remind ourselves. Verse 13 says, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of, God, Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. When Jesus said that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus was referring back to the Old Testament book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 21. And here was a scene. The people of Israel were complaining to Moses. And ultimately they were complaining to God. We want to go back to Egypt. We don't like it here in the wilderness. We're suffering. As a result, all of a sudden poisonous snakes appeared in the wilderness. And scores of people who were bitten by these snakes died. The remaining people ran to Moses, begging for forgiveness, and God heard their cries. And God instructed Moses to make a bronze serpent, place it on a pole, and all those who were bitten by the snakes, they were told, if you look upon this bronze serpent, and if you believe that you will be healed, you will be healed. The reason why Jesus spoke that to Nicodemus was because Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, that's a picture of me. That's a symbol of me. I will be lifted up to die. But whoever looks upon me with faith Believing they will be healed. They will not die. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever looks upon that son and believes in him will not die but will have everlasting life. I'm going to take several minutes, if you will allow me, to, to share some important observations about this one verse before we make our way to the remaining verses. Because it's so easy for us to read that verse. Many of us have committed it to memory. It's important not to take this verse for granted. So I want to make many observations here. First of all, God's love is universal. God's love is universal. 
For God so loved the world. It is universal. When Jesus was having this conversation with Nicodemus, that wasn't clear in Nicodemus' mind. You see, Nicodemus, like the other religious leaders at that time, they thought just the opposite. And the reality was this. Many Jews at that time rarely thought that God loved the world. Many in the community, and especially the religious community, believed that God only loved Israel. So you understand, this universal offer of salvation was radical. It was absolutely radical that Jesus would say to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world. I, I am the true bronze serpent. Nicodemus needed to recognize that he, like any other person, Jew or Gentile, was a sinner in need of a savior. And the good news is this. Nicodemus ultimately came to that realization. And there's every indication that he gave his life to Jesus. Because later on in John chapter 19, we'll get to that passage at the end of our series. We're told that after Jesus' crucifixion, there were two men who were so moved by his death that they gave him a proper burial. Nicodemus was one of them. God's love is universal. It extends to all. Now, this doesn't mean that all will be saved, but his merciful love is universal. Whoever, whoever, Jew or Gentile, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God's love is universal. There's a second observation. God's love is deep. It is profoundly deep. God's love is deep. For God so loved the world. In the English language, when you put the word so in front of something, it, it deepens and it intensifies, it magnifies that description. Right? After you have a meal or a dessert, you can say, eh, that was good. Or you can say, that was so good. And those are two very different meanings. Eh, that was pretty good. Pretty, you know what pretty means? Pretty means above average. So you go to a restaurant, you eat your meal or your dessert, you go, and you're walking out of that restaurant, you go, oh, that place was okay. That place was good. Or you go, that place was so good. And in written form, it's an S followed by 10 O's. So good. You walk out, oh, the depth of flavors of that restaurant, so incredible. You put the word so in front of something, and it just deepens the meaning. That's so true. Well, let me tell you how deep the love of God is. Better yet, allow me to allow the Apostle Paul to tell us how deep the love of God is. Ephesians 3, verse 17 says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, 
may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This was Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church and this ought to be our prayer for the E-free church. Oh, diamond bar that we may know just how deep the love of God is. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God's love is universal. God's love is deep. It is profoundly deep. And thirdly, God's love is sacrificial. That's another observation that we find here. God's love is sacrificial. God's love is anything but convenient. And if you really think about it, love by its very nature is very inconvenient, isn't it, right? Love is very inconvenient. Agape, which is the Greek word that describes God's love for us. Agape means unconditional, inconvenient, sacrificial. Here's the thing. As intense and as deep as God's love is, did you know that that is not the focal point of verse 16? For God so loved the world, that's not the focal point. The focus is on the verb of giving that he gave. In fact, you can read this verse this way. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son. He didn't give just anything. You know, during Christmas, many of you attended a white elephant Christmas gift exchange. When you went to that gift exchange, what did you do? You took along a convenient gift, a gift you no longer needed, a gift that you got from last year's gift exchange. That's convenient. Agape is inconvenient. You can look at it this way as well. God's love is different from puppy love. Do you know what puppy love is? Puppy love. In, in the English language, there's an idiom called puppy love. And it's used to describe a, a child's infatuation with a, another young person. Here's the thing about puppy love. Puppy love comes and goes. It's very convenient. As kids, you have puppy love one week, and then you have another puppy love the next week, and the third the following week. You know the term puppy love, that idiom? It's said to have come uh, into existence in the 19th century to describe the love between a little child and a puppy. Now, I imagine many kids... At some time or another, they go to mommy or daddy, can I have a puppy? Many have said that. Can I have a puppy? And they usually follow that up with, I promise I will take care of the puppy. I promise I will feed the puppy. I will walk the puppy. I will clean up after the puppy. I promise. And so eventually, mom and dad give in. <laughs> and they bring home the cutest puppy. And everybody falls in love with the puppy. But that's when the real work begins. That's when love begins. You see, because every puppy has puppy eyes. And they're wonderful. But the real work begins when you have to walk the puppy in the pouring rain. When you have to 
clean up after an accident in the house. Or when you have to buy new furniture because the furniture is all chewed up. You see, true love takes a lot of work. Anybody can have puppy love. God's love is sacrificial. Marriage takes a lot of work, doesn't it? Raising kids takes a lot of work, doesn't it? The kids will say, raising parents takes a lot of work. <laughs> God's love is sacrificial. In fact, God's sacrificial love had to match the intensity of his love. It had to. It was compelled. He could give nothing less because if his love was so deep for us, his gift had to match the level of that depth and intensity. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God's love is universal. God's love is deep. God's love is sacrificial. And here's the fourth and the final observation that I want to share. God's love is undeserved. God's love is undeserved. And, and to kind of flesh this out, I'd like to continue on now to verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. If you were a follower of Jesus Christ here this morning, Here's what you need to know. Before God saved us, we were condemned. Before God saved us, we were condemned. Verse 17 tells us that God did not send his son into the world to condemn us. Why? Because we already were condemned. Do you understand that? We were condemned. We weren't good. We weren't worthy. Jesus didn't die for those who were worthy to die for. Jesus did not die for the righteous. Jesus died to make us righteous. At the point of salvation, when we became righteous, that righteousness was never ours to begin with. We were given the righteousness of Christ. We were imputed with the righteousness of Christ. That's why Romans 5, verses 7 through 8, it tells us this. Very rarely will someone, anyone, die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You can look at it this way. Jesus did not come into the world to rescue those of us who were the good guys and to protect us from the bad guys. We were the bad guys. 
Do you understand that? Jesus did not come into the world to rescue the good people from the bad people. We were the bad people. And when I say bad guys and bad people, it's so tempting for us to picture a certain kind of person in our minds. A person who looks a certain way, dresses a certain way, keeps certain company. Right? We often define goodness by how people talk and how people look and how people dress and the company they keep. Oh, that, that's a good person based solely upon those things. And then we determine, well, there's a bad person based on how that person dresses, looks, and the company that person keeps. By all accounts, Nicodemus was a good guy because he looked the part, he talked the part, and he kept the company of other, quote, good people. But Jesus saw right through him. You see, God sees our core. And at our core, prior to salvation, we were no different than anybody else. We were the bad guys. Do you understand that? We were the bad guys. But when Jesus entered our lives, we came out of the darkness. Look at verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. It's so tempting for us to read this passage and think about, oh, all the, the, the bad guys, the wicked people. But this is about us before Christ came into our lives. You know, the impact that light has on darkness, it cannot be overstated. The instant that you introduce light to darkness, one of two things happens. One, it either brightens the day Right, light brightens the day, or two, it exposes. Light will brighten things up, or it will expose. Sometimes light is welcomed. I can't tell you how many times my flashlight on my phone has come in handy. Every day, multiple times a day, because when it's dark, it's dangerous. When it's dark, you step on Legos. And when it's dark, it's scary. So light is welcomed. It makes you feel good. Other times, the reality is this. Light can be bothersome. Like when you're trying to sleep and someone turned on the lights or opened the blinds. That usually happens on vacation in a hotel, right? You're in your hotel room with your family members. And the reality is this. Not every family member wakes up at the same time. And so if you're the first one up and you open those blackout shades in your hotel room, you're not going to be very popular. Well, here's the thing. At one point, we were all 
bar none, we are all living in darkness, spiritually speaking. We all stood condemned. That's why when we come to this passage, we need to keep ourselves from having an us versus them mentality. We were the bad guys. But when light entered our lives, when Jesus entered our lives and we gave our lives to him, it brightened our days and we were no longer living in the darkness. Without Jesus, there would be nothing to distinguish us from those who are still living in darkness. Without Jesus, there's nothing to distinguish us from those who are still living in darkness. But because of Jesus, our lives are radically different. I hope you believe that. I hope you believe that your life is radically different because of Jesus. It must be. It has to be. It cannot be the same. If you've given your life to Jesus, your life is radically different, and it shows in your life. And we are now called to walk in the light. And what that practically means for us is that we walk like Jesus walked. Jesus saved us from our darkness. Remember, Jesus did not come to a group of people who already loved him. Do you understand that? Jesus did not come to those of us who already loved him. He came to a people who were condemned to save us. That's why we cannot get this passage wrong. You see, because sometimes within the church, there's this us versus them mentality that I spoke about early on. And that's just not healthy. And it's not biblical. Because if we have an us versus them mentality, one of two things will happen. If we approach life with an us versus them, outsiders mentality, it'll either, one, it'll drive fear into the life of the believer. Oh, terrible, terrible, terrible people. Terrible. And so it'll drive fear into the life of the believer. They're terrible, bad. Or, two, we'll spend all of our days and efforts trying to clean up the bad guys. Some of you have heard me say this over and over again. You'll probably hear me saying this over and over again this year. You and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, are not called to be the morality police. We are not the morality police. That was the life of the Pharisee. So today's passage, I don't want to burst your bubble here, but today's passage is not about our loveliness. It really isn't about our loveliness. It's about the God who loves. 
and whose love is universal, it is deep, it is sacrificial, and it is undeserved. So if we approach our days with this posture of humility and gratitude, then here's what changes. We will look upon that person not as the enemy, Remember, this passage is about us condemned before Christ changed our lives. Moving forward with a proper understanding, we will look upon those family members, relatives, co-workers, neighbors, as those who you want to see experience the love of Jesus. And if we do that, then we will look like Jesus. We will walk like him, talk like him, behave like him. And we can be Jesus to those in our lives. And so my prayer for myself and for our church family this coming week is that we approach life with a posture of humility and gratitude. As we do so, we will look more and more like Jesus. Father, we come before you. Thanking you for this passage. Thank you for reminding us of your love. That it's universal, it is deep, it is sacrificial, and it is undeserved. So as we approach life, I pray that, that I and my church family, that we would not have a, an us versus them mentality. Rather, that we would shine and proclaim the love of Jesus, that we'd be winsome, that we would bring hope and light to those in a dark world, to even let them know that we once lived in darkness, but light entered our lives. And the impact that light makes is unmistakable. So help us to shine the light of Jesus this week. I pray in his name. Amen.